I've lived in New Jersey my entire life. I've been a fiction writer, actor, playwright, blogger, gourmet chef, home renovator, event planner, landscape architect, and decorator. I'm married to a professional drummer who is also an award-winning photographer, so the arts have always been really important to me. There are so many people in New Jersey that are involved in the arts, and I am planning to talk to all of them. Well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And I'm inviting you to listen in. I'm Lucille Sapio, talking arts and culture, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. My next guest is Tony Cimarosi, a longtime friend of mine and Gary's. I first met him when he was a client of Gary's now-defunct recording studio. I love to tease Tony about taking bass solos, but in reality, Tony is a very talented bass guitarist, and he also plays the upright bass. He's played all over the world with so many musicians that I could never name all of them. Tony has taught music and composition at multiple colleges in the New York tri-state area. And in addition to that, he owns a recording company and for many years owned a video company as well. Tony has lived in New Jersey for most of his career of over 30 years, and I'm so glad to have him as my guest today. Hi, Tony. Hello, Lucille. It's great to see you again. Let's jump right in here. You are a very accomplished player of both the bass guitar and the upright bass. You have several CDs. You've you've played with an incredible array of artists, including Randy Brecker and Jeremy Wall of Spyrogyra. You have studied with some of the top players in the world, and you've traveled worldwide playing everything from jazz to world beat to R&B to rock. Of all those genres, which do you enjoy playing the most? Well, you know, a lot of times, Lucille, at, at this particular stage, I, I really take all the labels off, the genres off. Just as you and I grew up in R&B, my first bass solo was Tighten Up by Archie Bell and the Drells. And, you know, playing rock and roll, everything from Yes to Beatles. At this stage of the game, I just call it playing music. I'm just playing and whatever it's called for, it's, I kind of like dig into that. There's not too much that I don't like. Now, you've played all over the world, right? Well, I've played throughout Europe, and um, the only place in Europe that I didn't play is Italy, and I'm, I'm bummed. Mm-hmm. I've been very fortunate to, uh, to be able to play in a lot of different countries and see their culture and how, how it affects the music. And, mm-hmm. Lucille, I, I must add that it really says a lot about where the music that they love the most comes from. It comes from here. They love jazz, mm-hmm. you know, and they're so attentive. Do you have a favorite country, foreign country to play in? Well, you know, that's a good question. I think I, um, I would say Japan has a great audience. You know, I did a six-city tour there. I also have to say Moscow, the two tours, two one-month tours in Russia. Moscow's audience is just, I mean, the Russian audience in general, they're, they're just so smart. And they love jazz. They love American music. They love us. It's just the politics that are all screwed up like well, they why are. Why do you here. think that Europeans really appreciate jazz more than American audiences? Well, they're educated. First thing they take away in this country whenever the, they want to steal money from us is they take away, you know, the arts. And in Europe, kids, you know, start listening to jazz music and classical music when they're when they're kids and and they have to understand it in a more active listening way. I know very little about music composition or music theory. If I can't sing to it or dance to it or get mellow listening to it, it doesn't have a lot of value for me. 
So what would you suggest to someone to be able to better appreciate more music? Well, I mean, just because it didn't evoke an immediate emotional response from you with certain music uh, that you didn't understand, I think what one of the most important components is to lose the fear of judgment, of, of thinking that somebody's going to ask you something about what you just listened to and you're going to think that you don't have the right answer. Let's go on to something else. Now, you, okay. you hold a master's degree in composition mm -hmm. and you studied at Berklee School of Music, among other places. And you were a member of the Purchase Conservatory faculty for about eight years, and you've taught at other schools. So you've got these kind of these two careers, teaching and playing music. Which do you enjoy more? Well, that, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, I started playing piano when I was six, and then I was a tap dancer for a few years. And really? when you I saw the Beatles, dancer? yeah, yeah, I was a shuffle ball change, toe heel, toe heel. I dog. love tap dancing. Yeah, I loved it too. <laughs> uh, me and my shadow and Horando's Hideaway were two of my specials, you know. I got the guitar when I was 12. As soon as I got the guitar, so so that I knew how to pick things up by ear, my brother Mike and I, we used to play piano together. We'd play left hand, right hand. And when we did that, we had to come to a consensus. We had to agree mm -hmm. on things. Intuitively, we had to agree. So it was easy for me to hear chords to like Mrs. Brown, You Got a Lovely Daughter, and Beatles, Twist and Shout, and Louie Louie, and Walk Don't Run, and all these tunes back then. And of course, the neighborhood kids, they wanted to learn how to play guitar. So I was 12, and I picked the stuff up pretty fast. And I started teaching at that age. So teaching music really runs very closely to as long as I've recognized music, you know, starting to play piano at six, you know. I think that they both kind of work together, but obviously I love playing music more than mm -hmm. anything. Where did you grow up, Tony? I, I grew up in an area called Newcastle, Delaware. What was the most influential thing in your childhood in terms of, you know, becoming a musician? Well, I think getting the piano in the house for my mother. She played a little bit of piano. It was very uh, impressive. But after my mother saw how quickly my brother Mike and I picked it up, she wouldn't play around us. <laughs> <laughs> she got embarrassed. Huh? <laughs> Mike and I were both alpha kind of people. Mike is now, he's a math and uh, physics professor. And of course, you know, and I stayed more into the music. So, but you know, we were always enough uh, alpha on each other to like, you know, try to outdo each other or something, you know. I've heard there's a really strong connection between math and music that a lot of times people who have an affinity for math also have an affinity for music. Have you found that? I mean, it sounds like your brother. You know, I was an engineer major before I studied there music. There you go. <laughs> and, and yeah, and I, I found out very early that mathematics was really not my thing. I mean, I knew it in high school, you know, that math was really not that easy for me. It's yeah, but you had an affinity for it or you wouldn't have gone into engineering. I didn't know that I didn't want to do engineering. Uh, I was looking for, you know, um, uh, a certain type of stability. And but follow, you became you know. a musician. <laughs> You music became a musician is, for stability. That's, that's well, music is just a hobby. Well, yeah, but was, I was a victim of circumstance, too. You know, I, I had a son right out of high school. I started college, and I figured, well, you know, music I'd play on the weekends, and really mm -hmm. that's what we're doing now. You've done a lot of gigs. I mean, you've played an incredible number of gigs. But is there a gig that you've always wanted but you've never gotten a chance to do? That's an interesting question. I've had some opportunities. You know, living in New York City over a decade and – um, and then in the New York metropolitan area for 35 years, I was very fortunate to play with some great musicians. And at one time, um, I had an opportunity. I was playing uh, with the violinist, Michael Urbaniak. He was doing a record called Manhattan Man. And at that time, I'd also had a house up on Lake Como, which is about two and a half hours from New York City. I decided that nothing was happening in New York. And I went to the lake house. 
As soon as I got there, Michael calls and says, hey, Tony, I want you to come back. I have a recording with um, Herbie Hancock coming over. <laughs> and I said, look, Mike, I, I just got here and I didn't go back. So that would be one that I, you know. So you never got had, a chance to play with Herbie Hancock? I never got a chance to play yeah. with Herbie. Now, if you knew that this was the last year of your life, how uh -huh. would you want to spend it? Oh, with people that I love, playing music, some traveling. I like traveling. Do you think it's more important to be well-known as a musician or to be well-liked? Oh, hey, listen, I mean, I'd rather be well-liked than well-known. You know, I mean, you come across a few of them, you say, I never want to be in his shoes, you know? <laughs> I'm sure there are a few musicians that you play with that you have pretty negative views on. I'm not going to ask you to talk about them. Well, you can if you want to without using names. A negative, well, uh, post that again? Musicians that you've played with that are just total assholes. Oh, no, I no, would never answer that question. No but, names. I'm not saying names, but some things uh -huh. that they may have done that made you yeah. consider them as total jerks. Well, like not paying you for a gig. All the challenges and things, I just kind of, you know, back in, in, in that day, let's say, because that hasn't happened to me in decades, when something would happen, it would be, you know, opportunists, you know, those types of people. And you know these types of people, you know? Oh, yeah. And so, so, I mean, I think that you and I could both fill in the same blanks as something like this. <laughs> So, okay, here's here's a very esoteric question. It's two parts. They've all been esoteric. Oh, yeah. Why does a bass guitar only have four strings? And wouldn't more strings give you more options? All the way back to Baroque music, Dragon Eddie, Bach, of course, with they were using three-string basses. And the things that Giovanni Bottanzini wrote bass music, we're still trying to figure it out today. I think that the six-string instrument covers an array of tonal opportunities. So like anything, you can abuse something or you can have a composer's head or a composer's ear and know where you're supposed to fit in on the ensemble. Uh, a lot of these bass players, when they saw Anthony Jackson and Patatucci and these guys coming out, went out and got a six-string bass and they just wanted to play low guitar. The guitar player gets all the girls, you know? Now I've noticed, and, I, and I've talked to you about this, that a lot of times bass players try to be the center of attention. And you know my favorite <laughs> bass player, George ben Benson's band, uh, what's his name? Uh, Stanley, Stanley Banks. George Stanley Banks, right. Always wants to great be the guy. center of attention. We, we've hung out. He's a great guy. Well, tell him I can't stand his persona on stage. <laughs> Have you noticed this, that, that this is a common thread among bass players? I don't know. I think that, you know, Look, Jaco Pastorius did a lot of things with the bass, you know, in his genius, not only as a composer, but as reinventing the bass. That when he came out, and, and you remember this, you know, everybody wanted to kind of jump into that kind of vibe and, and then do it. The rock guys had already had that mastered decades prior to that with the theatrics. And I mean, go back to Little Richard and some of these earlier cats, man. I mean, Elvis Presley, they had it too. But so, they, But they weren't bass, bass players. Well, that's what I was getting to. Bass is always set up in the back next to the drums. So you're already in the back so you're already taking a passive approach so i think that that has something to do with it the bass players it didn't really have the opportunity to come out but once the electric bass came out you could move forward more so i think that that's what brought us out into the open more now you mentioned before the duo of the bass and the drums talk to me about the connection between the two and how important that is well it's it's always evolving of course you know the bass was always doing uh, that quarter note boom 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 that was the the role of the bass for so many decades then the bass guitar came in the whole role changed it became you know rhythm 
AKA rhythm and blues. Mm -hmm. And where did that rhythm come from? So the bass player and the drummer, there has to be a consensus that they both agree where the time is. And Gary and I used to have these conversations because Gary's got an impeccable time. If you look at the African diaspora and how that influenced American music, that African time in my years of playing and being musical director for Baba Olatunji, you had 14, 15 people up on a stage and it was all flowing together. The very first thing that my ear goes for is the drummer. Have you ever played with a drummer who you just couldn't connect with? I'm sure there are times that yeah, there have been yeah, drummers that you haven't connected with. So how do you overcome that? Well, if, if, it's, if it's, look, if it's a professional situation, I would try to make it so that I could help the drummer out and kind of pinpoint it. But if your drummer doesn't listen, if it doesn't have an ear, is so focused on what they are doing mm. rather than what we are doing, I would use body language. I did mm -hmm. that with, with Bernard Purdy. We were playing a gig, a big band gig outside, and all his music blew away. And I looked at him and I went like this, just watch me. Mm. And I was giving him all the kicks like a couple measures before they happened. And once he dialed into me and how I was communicating with him, we hit it off. So drummer and bass player relationship is paramount. My bottom line would be if it don't groove, it don't move. We all know that bass players love to play solos. Other than bass players, does anybody else enjoy a bass solo? <laughs> and, I, and, I and you know, know and you know, I'm just. I know you're being you facetious here. with that. Yeah, <laughs> there's been bass repertoire written for centuries that is really specifically written for bass solos. But if you're not an, if you're not a better active listener, if you haven't been educated in that area. Then you would, you, it, it, it's, it's, it's a learned behavior, so to speak, Lucille. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like anything else. It's like somebody not being able to go to an opera or go to a ballet. That doesn't always come naturally. So you have to learn it. And that's why people like me, you know, educators would do this. We would help, you know, I would always say to my students, especially at Iona College, where they were non-musicians. And I say, my job here is to help you become a better active listener. This is my last question, Tony. What is the biggest mistake that you made in your <laughs> what's the biggest mistake you made in your life and what did you learn from it um yeah that's a good let me think about that for a second you okay know. Uh, be able to be a better listener oh come on that's a cop-out that's the biggest mistake you made yeah i would say that the biggest mistake would be to be a better listener is to be able to listen to advice that was given to me that i didn't take i'd listen to things that intuitively in my gut that were telling me and, and I didn't listen to that. And the ramifications of that on either side, whatever that was, I should have listened a little bit better, either way you want to, any way you want to phrase it. Okay, I'll, I'll let you get away with that. I think I think you might have some mistakes in the back of your head that you're you're holding back on, but that's okay. <laughs> so now you're you're saying no, no, you're, you're holding back, and I'm, and I'm not. I'm really being honest that because the question covers so much ground that you ask. The bottom line is is that you know those choices that I made, and because I didn't listen, I either didn't listen to my gut or I didn't listen to somebody giving me some advice. Mm -hmm. All right, I'll let I'll, I'll let that stand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Tony, thank you so much for making the time. Oh, Lucille, it's always great to see you. And yes. uh, it's been way too long. Yes, and, we'll get um, together soon. I love the arts and I love to talk. And that's why I'm talking to local artists. And if you like listening, then subscribe to my podcast. You can do it on this page, on iTunes, or anywhere you get podcasts. I'm Lucille Sapio, and this is Hazlitt Coffee Talk. Mm -hmm.